Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Some of you wearing your Easter best, looking good. I'm excited to celebrate Easter. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ every Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ every day. But there's still something very special about Easter, knowing that saints across this world, throughout history, are celebrating the resurrection of Christ. We're we're connected in this resurrection. It's a beautiful thing. And, And the resurrection of Christ is historically certain and eternally significant. It, it should change everything. And, and I hope for you it has changed everything. And, and if not, I hope that today you see and you believe it changes everything. And so Christ, rising from the dead, has declared victory over sin and death. He became sin on the cross and died. And then he left sin and death in the grave when he left. And, it, and because of that, it's, it's a guarantee for us who believe that we will be justified, that we are justified, that we will be and we're being sanctified, and that we will be glorified. We'll have resurrected bodies as Christ. It's guaranteed because he didn't stay in the grave. So the resurrection has all this significance in it, but, but did it really happen? I think that's an important question. Many believe that it was just a spiritual resurrection that he didn't actually raise and And some others believe he didn't happen at all or he didn't even die on the cross. There's many theories that deny it and ways of trying to figure it out. But there's some very important things we see in Scripture that that make make pretty clear that it happened. And not just in Scripture, but in history that make pretty clear that it happened. So, So then what? What do we do with it? Christ's resurrection is not simply a part of the gospel story. It's the main event. Like it's. It's what we're celebrating. It's what we hope for. It's the reason for hope. The resurrection truly is everything. Yes, the cross was necessary, but it wasn't the end. The resurrection, praise God, is, the, is what we're hoping for, not just death. It doesn't end in death, but there's life. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks a lot about this idea that if not for the resurrection, our faith is pointless. It's all in vain. If not for the resurrection then we're to be pitied more than anyone. If Christ is still dead, there's no hope. And so the resurrection is absolutely the main event, not just of Christianity, but of the history of the world. Everything is centered around this. The cross is vital, but praise God, it wasn't the end. it's, It's as if Jesus said he was going to pay a debt, and then hanging on the cross, he's writing the check. And the resurrection is proof that the check cleared It's taken care of. It's paid in full. And so when we consider all the accomplishments in life, all the the tastes of success, the things we enjoy, we know that it comes at a cost. So certainly the cross was necessary. It's the labor pains. The cross was necessary and the resurrection is the reward. The crucifixion was a painful discipline, a, a working out of something. It was this necessary practice before the resurrection, the payoff, the feeling of, of triumph, the holding the trophy in your hand, the, the gold medallion around your neck. This is what we're hoping for in the midst of the trials. And so every amount of suffering we do, every moment of pain, every doubt we have, every anxiety we sense, it's, it's got an end eventually. 
But none of that is compared to, the, to what Christ suffered on his cross. As we discussed last week, the death was far more brutal. It was far more to endure than any of us would ever endure. And the resurrection is, is proof that he overcame it. And so, in, in us doing none of the work, we'll enjoy all of the benefits. That's, nothing else works like that. You work really hard and then you get the payoff. But for us, though we still suffer, for us... Christ took the brunt. Christ suffered on our behalf. And he was resurrected. So we still suffer, yes. But our endurance as believers is like a father disciplining his son. If I spank my son for playing in the road, it's going to hurt. But it's going to hurt a lot less than getting hit by a truck. And so for us, this, this growth we're experiencing in our suffering is, is, as Paul would say, nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory which was accomplished for us by the suffering of Christ. And so Christ absorbed the wrath that we deserve and understand that the wrath of God that's being poured out on sinners for eternity in hell is every bit as intense as experiencing the joy of being in God's presence for eternity. And Christ, only Christ, experiences both. We will not suffer if we believe we only benefit the intense joy of being with God, our Creator, forever. While there are many who will never experience that, they'll be in hell. It's this mysterious thing that God can be, as, as the just judge He is, wrathful, as intensely wrathful as He is, more than anything we could endure, the most incredible pain, the most incredible suffering you could possibly imagine is not even a shadow of the wrath Christ absorbed. Yet it's also true that no, no amount of satisfaction this world has to offer, nothing you can imagine satisfying you, bringing you joy comes close to the joy and satisfaction we'll experience with God, free from sin, free from suffering for eternity. And this this distinction is necessary if we want to see the value of the resurrection. This guarantee that we will inherit that joy. And so if you think about it like this, Christ died for our sins. He became sin. He died for our sins. And he was raised for our salvation. He was killed because of the sin in our behalf, or on our behalf. And he was raised to give us life. He died putting sin to death and he rose giving us life. So this morning, considering what the resurrection is and why it's important, I'm going to ask you a simple question. Do you believe in the resurrection? And to be clear, I'm not asking you if you think it's important. I'm not asking you if you think it actually happened. I'm not asking you if you know all the facts to prove it happened. I'm asking you if you believe it. Do you place your faith in it? Does it mold the way you live your life? Are you a new creation because of it? And if we're honest, the resurrection is impossible. If, if we're just, if we look at it for what it is, naturally as humans, we struggle to believe impossible things. Right? Just be honest. It's good to be honest. I don't believe in possible things, right? And in my human 
perspective, how I understand how life works according to science. Logically, it's impossible for resurrection. So in light of that, we need to have our minds changed by truth. We need to have our heart changed by exposure to this amazing power of the gospel, grace. And we will, as a result, have our lives changed as we're called to this mission because of the resurrection. And in the book of Mark, we've been in Mark for a while. We're looking at the last of it. We're seeing the resurrection. And in this short passage we're going to look at today, we see all three of these things accomplished. Our mind will be challenged by truth. Our hearts will be engaged by grace. And our, our lives will be shaped by this gospel. In each gospel account, they, we see a provision of witness the resurrection story. Not all, all four of the Gospels talk about all things that Christ did, but they all talk about some things, and the resurrection is one of those things. And not surprisingly, Mark is the most concise account. He's always concise. He's very brief, but he's always to the point, and he, he somehow gets it all in there. And we're going to see, we're not going to look at all of the Gospels. We're going to focus really in Mark today. But there are some uh, those critics who would say there's discrepancies between these accounts that they would use that to deny it actually happened. But we know that Scripture doesn't need our help in reconciling itself. It's perfectly laid out, and instead we can harmonize some things. So if you go later and you read what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have to say about this account, you're going to see some things that may not seem to line up. And I want you to be comforted. That's okay. With right understanding of context and right understanding of, of literary forms, we can see that they, they don't contradict. In fact, they add and give us a bigger picture of what, what's actually going on here. It may not necessarily be chronological, but it fits together in a beautiful way to show us what's going on. So we will make a couple of references as we go through Mark and into the other Gospels. But let's see clearly four viewpoints, four perspectives, four men inspired by the Holy Spirit, the divine author of Scripture, have this account of something that was absolutely true in history. In Mark's eight verses, we see an unpack, we have to unpack it because it's so packed full of truth. And we see, most surprisingly, this abrupt end to his gospel account. Although it shouldn't be surprising because he's always kind of abrupt. But there's only eight verses in this last chapter. Now, you may be looking in your Bible right now and saying, wait, I see 20 verses. This guy didn't even know how many verses are there. I'm not going to listen to what he said. But, but in our, in our most, um, our most uh, credited uh, manuscripts, we see that there's actually only eight verses. The two, but there's more. The two earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the Greek New Testament only has these first eight verses. And so I, with having done research, and there's a science to this called textual criticism, uh, I, I would say and we would say that only the first eight verses are truly inspired. And your Bible likely has a note that tells you something similar to that. Um, but if you are curious, I would love to talk more about this with you. I will be posting something on the city uh, to, more, to give some more clarity. It's a lot more in length. We don't really have time for it. I don't want it to be a distraction. Um, but just for the sake of this sermon, I want you to know it, it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. Also, it doesn't really line up if you look at the original Greek with how Mark would say things. Um, but like I said, the post will be much more thorough. Um, you can rest assured, though, that Scripture you have in your hands is the Word of God. It, in every way, we would not 
spend the time we spend studying it and proclaiming it if we did not truly believe we can stand firmly upon it. It is the word of God. It is truth. And you can learn the ancient languages and you can study the manuscripts and you'll find that, that nothing, no matter, no matter what variances there are in the many, many manuscripts we have, there's nothing that detracts from the core doctrines of the Christian faith. There's nothing that takes away from who Christ is, what he's done, and who we are in light of it. And so we can look at what Mark has to say with confidence. And we'll look at a bit of an explanation as to why he might end so abruptly. But let's get into it. So Mark chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. All of it. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and, go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away this stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where, he, where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I praise you that in it we find all we need. And we can be satisfied in Christ for what he's accomplished, for who he is. We can find ourselves changed to be no longer who we used to be, but children of God with great hope because of the resurrection. I pray that this morning you would show us more clearly that this is something to challenge us, is something to change our minds, to change our hearts, and to change our lives. But it's only by the power of your gospel. So give us faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to first walk through kind of what's going on here. I want you to have a good idea of the context uh, to, so we can be there with these women as they are seeing this tomb and hearing this angel speak. And then we're going to look at how it applies to us here and now, thousand, a couple thousand years later. So verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. It's Easter Sunday. Today is Easter Sunday for us. This is the very first Easter Sunday. The, the Sabbath on Saturday has just passed, and so we know it's the first day. Everything for them revolves around Sabbath. It's the first day after Sabbath. These three ladies are disciples of Christ, and Mark gives their names. These, these precious women are servants to Christ. They've been servants of Christ throughout his ministry, and they once more seek to serve him. They're going to anoint him. And so Mark rarely gives names at all, but especially women's names. In just these last two chapters, we've seen him name these women three different times. Salome just twice, but 
It's, it's significant. It's got to be significant if Mark does that, this man who's so brief and doesn't even give people's names. So we'll look at that in, in just a little bit. But it's certainly meaningful that they're named. So two, two of these women, the Marys, followed Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to bury Christ. They watched it happen. They see the tomb. They know where it is. But the next day is Sabbath. So sundown on Friday, Sabbath begins and they're to do nothing according to tradition. So they probably sit with the rest of the disciples and weep because they're, they're Christ, Jesus, the one claiming to be the Lord, has just died. And it seems as if everything is over. So as soon as they can, they go to anoint him. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So now they could do nothing on the Sabbath, but they get up early on Sunday to go and anoint him. They, the sun, if you look at the other accounts, the sun hasn't risen yet, so it's likely hasn't risen. But while they're making their way to the tomb, perhaps they had to go buy the, the anointing ointments. And, and on their way to the tomb, the sun is up. They're getting there and they begin to talk to one another with anxiety Who's going to roll away this stone? We're just a bunch of women. These ladies, along with all the other disciples, have, have, are convinced Christ is dead. And it's clear. They're going to do something you only do for dead people. And the men are still in hiding because they're afraid. And these bold women are headed out with anxiety. Knowing not just that there's a giant stone in the way, but the Pharisees have asked the Roman soldiers be put around the tomb so it's being guarded. So what, how are they going to do this? And this phrase they were saying to one another is this ongoing conversation. They're stressed out about this. Feel the tension. All they want to do is go once more serve Christ and anoint Him. And they don't know how they're going to even get to Him. But they're going. And as they walk, they're approaching the tomb and their problems are solved in a very unexpected way. Verse 4, and they look up and they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The stone is pushed away. It's not where it used to be and the guards are gone and they don't know what's going on. So immediately their anxiety starts to shift, still very anxious, but a new type of anxiety. What has happened to Jesus? So remember that the Lord of creation is in this tomb. It's Christ. So the stone isn't going to hold him in the tomb. It's been, it's been pushed back. And you may think, because this is what we were taught in children's church, that the stone was pushed back so Jesus could come out. And every skit we've ever seen of Easter, the stone's pushed back so Jesus can come out. But I would say the stone is pushed back so the disciples can go in. So they can see the tomb is empty. Because this is Jesus. And not just Jesus, the resurrected Jesus who we know can walk through walls and just appear places and will ascend into heaven. He doesn't need the stone to be removed. So for our sakes, for the sake of these women and their anxiety, the stone was pushed away. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So John and Luke both have two angels here. 
Mark and Matthew both just speak of the one angel who's doing the talking. And he says to the women, don't be alarmed. So first he addresses their concerns. He addresses their fears. The women are concerned not just that there's there's a missing body, but they're concerned that they're in the presence of an angel. That we know through all throughout scripture when angels are present, people fear. People feel fear. I can't even imagine the presence of an angel, but we know there's scary things in the world. Like being face to face with a lion. It's pretty scary. About to fall off a, a waterfall. It's pretty scary. Hanging from a cliff. We can imagine this sort of fear when we know death is imminent. That's what these women are feeling in the presence of this angel. So he immediately, as angels usually do, addresses the alarm. And he says, do not be alarmed. And the language indicates that these women aren't, aren't just like a little nervous. They're, they're truly freaking out. I mean, it's, it's not typical for this kind of experience to happen, but especially on top of their longing to, to see their Savior, and He's just gone. There's so much going on in their minds. These are real women in history, like you and I, flesh and blood, with mortal minds, finite thinking, who, like the rest of the disciples, don't really understand what the resurrection means. So feel the anxiety here with them. And he says, do not be alarmed, addressing their fears. And then he appeals to their hope. And he says, kind of like a, like a mild rebuke. He says, what are you looking here for? Jesus isn't here. He told you he was going to be resurrected. And he, you're in the right place. This is the tomb of Christ. Look, this is where they laid his body. It's not there. Not just... Not just Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, this necessary connection to the death. But he has been raised. This is the gospel being proclaimed. The angel, the first time the gospel has ever been proclaimed is in the very tomb that they laid Jesus. He laid and he was raised and he's gone. And so the angel tells in verse 7, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And he said, and then they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So this is the end of Mark, not just of this chapter. This is the end of his recording the gospel. And the instruction here is clear and it's full of hope and it's full of grace. But we'll look closer at that in a minute. Let's just ponder for a second. Why end in this way? It's abrupt and not just abrupt, but it's overwhelmingly negative. Like in this, I mean, he he puts tons of negative things in here intentionally. They fled from the tomb. They're trembling. The astonishment he's describing is fear, like not just a reverence, but a genuine fear that has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, which is directly disobedient. And they were afraid. Why so negative, Mark? Why would you end it in this way? Now, it's, it's pretty clear that Mark's making a point. They're terrified, gripped by fear, bewilderment, like confusion, dismay. And like the disciples in the garden, when Christ was arrested, they're running in fear. They're shocked into silence. 
It's not a permanent silence. As we see in other accounts, Mary Magdalene would be met by Christ and given hope as she's weeping because her Savior is gone. And then she runs and she tells Peter. So we know that that happens, but right now, if all we have is Mark's account, he doesn't want us to be left with that. Instead, he leaves us with this picture of human weakness. That even with the knowledge of Christ being resurrected, given to these women by an angel of the Lord, they're gripped by fear. It's a moment to observe the amazement of the women at the empty tomb. But it's entirely consistent with the rest of Mark's narrative. And we, we, we can look anywhere. There are people being amazed by Jesus all throughout this book of the Bible. In Mark chapter 1, he starts it with, they were astonished by his teaching. And, and they were amazed. So they questioned among themselves, like, can this be? Like this amazement, this Christ is like no one else the earth has ever seen. He's like a rabbi that no one else has ever experienced. And in chapter 2, when he heals the paralytic, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And, and then all throughout Mark's teaching, constantly the disciples are amazed, the, the Pharisees are amazed, the people, the crowds, they're all amazed at Christ. He's doing things no one has ever seen. And it's not just, oh wow, that's cool. It's, it's a gripping amazement, a fear. How can this be? It's unearthly. There's nothing like it. No one has ever experienced anything like this. And in the very same way, Mark starts his recording of this account of the gospel. He ends with it. As we preach throughout this book, you've heard us use words like audacious and shocking and, and scandalous. Christ was like no one else. And Mark clearly wants that to be communicated all throughout this astonishing work of Christ revealed throughout everything he writes. And so, so poignantly in verse 8 of the last chapter, he'd leave us with this astonishment. And the truth is, even if I were to see all the miracles of Christ, even if I were present when Christ calls Lazarus to get out of the grave after being dead for four days, even if I would have seen all of that, I don't know that I could believe the angel. Even if an angel told me, like these women, I don't know if I could believe it. Because though I've seen the impossible, Christ did the impossible things, he's dead now. I watched him die. These women were at the cross when he breathed his last breath. They followed him to his tomb and they saw the stone put in place. So how can the impossible be done when the one who does the impossible things is dead? It's impossible. The resurrection is impossible. And it's just as unbelievable to them as it is to many skeptics today. It defies logic. It's physically impossible. No one can completely be dead for days and then get up. Except for this one time when it happened with Jesus. So anytime any skeptic comes to me and says the resurrection is impossible, I can with confidence say, yeah, no. That's why it's amazing. He got out of the grave. He did it. No one else has done this. 
Like even the, even the dead people who Christ raised died again. It's not the same. And, and those of the Old Testament, Elijah and Enoch, who just went on to be with the Lord, they didn't die. So it's not the same. Christ was dead. He's now risen and he will never die again. It's done one time. Only one has done it. That's why it's amazing. And it's, it's really, have, that's how we have to come at it. There's no other way because what else do we do with the fact that the tomb is empty? There's not a body to be found. We're just facing the facts. The body is definitely gone. People have been searching for it for 2,000 years and they're not going to find it because it's not here. So right away, Mark gives us this empty tomb as empirical evidence. He's gone. And so if you don't believe Christ is resurrected, the empty tomb forces you to deny his existence altogether. You have to call it a myth or a fairy tale. Only historical evidence, well-documented evidence, proves he was a real man. He did, in fact, live. So you have to be... You have to be really blind to those things in order to accept that. So if he did live, and he certainly died, as we heard last week's sermon, no one survives a crucifixion. These are expert murderers. These are not just not good executioners. They're experts at it. This is all they do. And their lives are on the line. So if he didn't die, they're going to they're be dead. So they're going to make sure he's dead. Not to mention he was flogged, and he was stabbed in the side with a spear, So how far do we have to go into this before we admit he definitely died? So he certainly lived. He certainly died. The tomb was closed. No one survives that. So then we have to get into some silly arguments. The tomb's empty. We can't find the body. So there are many who would say it was just the world's greatest hoax. Somehow they stole the body and they hid it for good. Some would say the Pharisees stole the body so that they could say, well, we don't want the disciples claiming he was resurrected, so let's take the body. But if that were the case, once the disciples started going, the movement began, surely they could have just said, hey, here's the body. Gotcha. And they didn't. And so some would say the disciples stole the body. Somehow they went through some rigorous training so they could take down the soldiers And they rolled the stone away and they got the body. But if that were the case, first of all, they're really good at hiding it. But also, all of them endured extreme persecution and were martyred, with the exception of John, who they tried to kill and he just wouldn't die, so they exiled him. And so you might say, well, yeah, sure, people die for their faith all the time. Faith in something, even if it's a false thing, can cause someone to want to give their life. That happens all the time with Islam. That's a perfect example. That's not what's happening here. What you're claiming is the disciples stole the body. So they know it's a hoax. So surely people would die if their faith is wrongly placed in something. But this isn't faith. They made it up. This is what the claim is. If they made it up, surely any reasonable mind would say, a lie can only go so far. If you threaten my wife and my kids, there's no way I'm holding on to this lie that I made up. Beaten over and over. 
and then executed. At some point, they would have said, one of them, maybe, maybe some are foolish and they would go, but somebody surely would have said, okay, we made it up. How much torture does it take? And what's even the point? Why would they even do that? So I'm poking at these silly things because there's people who confidently say this is this has to be what it is because resurrection is impossible. But there's more. Some would say it's a group hallucination, which psychologically doesn't happen. And if it did happen, it wouldn't happen for an extended period of time. Some would say that they just found the wrong tomb. It's an actual theory. I won't even tell you why that's dumb. Some say that Jesus had a twin who actually died on the cross for him. It's a real thing. The entire Islamic faith believes Jesus was a prophet. And one of his disciples volunteered to be crucified for him. That it wasn't even Christ on the cross. The problem with that lookalike theory and the twin theory is that at some point, even if he hid out until Sunday and he was like, here I am, resurrected. At some point he had to die. And then it's over. But to be honest, no one was in the tomb. It was sealed. No one actually witnessed the event of the resurrection. We only know what happened before and after. So sure, we have to prove it was a real thing. Though no one seems to be able to prove any other theory. But there happens to be a mountain of evidence that says it must be. First of all, the tomb is empty, so kind of a big deal. If you can't find the body after 20 centuries of searching, what do we do with that? When, when the, there's a documented historical report that, that the execution happened and the burial happened, and now the tomb is empty. It's, and then also the gospel was preached first in Jerusalem by Peter, and thousands were saved. So if this is all made up, surely they wouldn't start preaching it in the city where he was killed and everyone saw it. Also, Sunday became the day of worship as we hold today as the Lord's day when it was Saturday as the Sabbath since Moses. So there was this major shift in history where all of a sudden Sunday is the day of worship. And then there's the fact that none of the alternative theories can hold up. No evidence can be provided that, that says he's still in the tomb. So some are simply absurd reaches at an explanation. But surely if any of these things were the, the actual explanation, then the Romans who were ruling at the time or the, the Jewish leaders who had a lot of authority over the people would have said something and done something to prove these guys are making this up. Don't believe their lies. They would have been able to stop it. But nothing and no one has been able to stop this. And there were many others who claimed to be Messiah around this time. And all of those men died. And with them, the movement died. But this one somehow didn't collapse. Not only did it, did it survive, but it exploded out of nowhere. Just so happened to explode 50 days after that we, we know Christ was with them for 40 more days after the resurrection and, and he ascended into heaven and he told them to wait for the spirit to come. And when the spirit came, there was an explosion of faith documented in history outside of scripture. There was an explosion of faith that does not happen if the savior is dead. 
This is historical. In fact, it's not just historical, but there's more factual evidence. There's more manuscripts. There's more to to compare of the New Testament than any document throughout history. So if you don't believe this, then you have to throw out all of antiquity. None of it can be real because this is more authenticated than any of it. So what do we even believe anymore? I want you to see clearly it's silly to not believe this happened. You You have to deny it as a reality. Just as much as you have to deny that I'm standing right here in front of you. There's more evidence even. Because there's not 500 people in here. And we know that at least 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. These people were no longer who they used to be. So it wasn't just, yeah, I saw them, a claim. But their lives were effectively changed by it. These disciples who were known Cowards and failures and always misunderstanding and getting things wrong suddenly have this confidence when their Savior is gone. They have this confidence, this boldness to proclaim not just to anyone, but in front of people who would kill them, this truth that changed them and they're no longer who they used to be and enduring extreme persecution and exile and, and beatings and ridicule and eventually put to death. This boldness didn't just come out of anywhere. And among those witnesses also was this man named Paul, or Saul, who was a violent persecutor of the church. He hated Christianity. He wanted to end it. And and he encountered the risen Christ on the way to go and persecute Christians. And his life was totally changed. And he became Paul, the apostle. And not only did he cease to persecute the church, but he joined them in their persecution. And maybe more than anyone Put his life on the line. The the most prolific and and wonderful and and amazing and to be worshipped missionary of all time. And he had to deny it and say, don't worship me. This is how amazing of a Christian he was. People were saying, I want to be like Paul. And he had to say, it's about Christ. It's not about me over and over again. Because that's how devoted he was to this Savior. From having once persecuted the church. And then how about James. The half brother of Jesus. Who was a total skeptic during the ministry of his brother. Because understandably he grew up with a guy. And I know my brothers. I have two half brothers. And if either one of them lived perfect lives. I still wouldn't believe they were the savior. Unless they died. And then I saw them resurrected. It just so happens that's James's story. He was converted after the resurrection. And not just converted, but put his skepticism behind him and was brutally martyred along with the others. So what do we do with all of this? And maybe the most compelling of all the witnesses are these women. The fact that Mark names them attests to the early dating of this account because it's likely that these women were still alive and part of the church that Mark's writing. And so he's saying, because for them, eyewitness account is everything. For them, he's saying, look, hear hear what I'm saying. Read these words, but go talk to these women. Mary and Mary and Salome, they're with you. Go ask them about their experience. And and not only does it attest to the early dating, but it attests to the truth of this account because the fact that these are women and they're mentioned at all is amazing. 
It's, I, I can't, it cannot be exaggerated that the testimony of women was meaningless to this culture. It was something like a witness of a woman wasn't even valid in legal proceedings. Like no one cared. And so the fact that Mark and the other disciples, the other gospel accounts, would write down that the very first witnesses of the empty tomb were women is astonishing. It's not even something they would have thought to make up if they were writing the story. Because no one would even care. So the only reason they would write that women discovered the empty tomb is if that's actually what happened. So given all of this evidence, what are we left with? The resurrection. It must have happened. Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he was going to do. The Lord of all creation defeated death. He didn't remain in the tomb. He put sin and death in the tomb, and he came out. But let me make this really clear, and you need to hear this. The Crossing Church, you need to hear this, and this needs to be very clear, because this is a major struggle for us. All of this knowledge... All of these very convincing, all these very convincing facts are not enough to save you. It doesn't make you more holy to know them. It doesn't make you more spiritually mature to have them ready to throw at somebody. If you face your biggest skeptic and you tell them all of this information, you impress them. It does nothing to save you. There are, there are men and women who have PhDs in theology who struggle with sin because their knowledge cannot save them. And there will be millions, if not billions, of brilliant minds burning in hell for eternity. Knowledge is not enough. It challenges us. We need it. We need to see it. And it can lead us. But if that knowledge does not drop down into belief, it's nothing. So faith in the truth and only faith saves you. So I ask you, not do you think the resurrection really happened based on all this evidence and not can you prove to me with, beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was real. I'm asking you, do you believe in the resurrection? And if so, why do we allow doubt and fear to keep us quiet? Why do we indulge in our sinful desires in secret? Why do we seek satisfaction in this world as if it's nowhere else to be found and live anxiously for our futures and work tirelessly to, to accomplish something and, and get other people's acceptance for whoever's defining what cool and smart and funny and fashionable or attractive or successful means that matters most to us? Why do we spend so much time scrolling through social media or fixed on some screen of some sort instead of on our knees in prayer and studying God's word because that that's what matters most. Why do we devote ourselves to worldly things if we believe the resurrection? Why not instead devote ourselves to Christ if we believe? I can think of only one answer to this. We don't believe. And yes, every, every believer is a believer, but every believer is an unbeliever. It's a struggle. It's a fight. Christ has, for once and for all, put sin to death. But every day we put sin to death.
because of Christ. As new creations in Him, we are killing our sin so it doesn't kill us. Empowered by His Spirit, brought to new life, we conquer it. And we care a lot less about finding our joy in possessions if we found our joy in Christ. And our interactions with strangers and with our neighbors and with our co-workers would be vastly different if we considered their souls. If we knew that every human being who's ever lived would be resurrected, some will spend eternity in hell with their resurrected body, suffering forever, and some will be with Christ in eternity, experiencing joy forever. If we kept that in our minds, if we really believed that, then all of life would be different. Our hearts would be, would be changed. So we must admit with our hearts in humility that resurrection is impossible. And we cannot accomplish it. So Christ did it for us. So let's look at verse 7. As we see this. He says, the angel says, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as, I, as he told you. This angel sends the disciples to Galilee to meet Christ. Mark is pointing out for us very clearly the empty tomb is not enough. Knowledge of the resurrection is not enough. You must encounter the resurrected Christ to have life. Christ produces faith. Empirical evidence will fail you. We see this is the case, the response of the women, because they flee the tomb in fear because they have yet to encounter Christ. They got all they need to know to know that the resurrection happened, but still there's no belief because they've yet to encounter Christ. The angels proclaiming a remarkable word of grace and encouragement. This, the disciples have abandoned Jesus. They've doubted the resurrection. They've denied him. And he says to them, come meet me. The first act of ministry Jesus did was calling the disciples in Galilee to follow him. And the first act of Jesus as the resurrected Lord has, says, come unite with me in community in Galilee. So do we see the grace here? He didn't say, the angel didn't say, go tell those backsliding punk pansies to come meet me in Galilee and beg me to take them back. And if they beg hard enough, then maybe I'll consider adding them back. He had every right to say that. In fact, that's what I would have said. Sounds awesome. Tell those punks come beg me for forgiveness. But that's not our Savior. Instead, He has already made them His. He's already called them to be His disciples. So with grace and in kindness, He, he enables their repentance by asking... Just come meet with me. The love and forgiveness of Christ makes repentance and belief possible. So what about the major failure? What about Paul or Peter? This dude totally screwed up. And I'm sure you've noticed the angel said his name specifically. Tell the disciples and Peter to come on. It's almost as if Jesus knows that if Mary goes to the disciples and says, Hey, Jesus wants to meet with us in Galilee. Peter's going to think, probably not me. He probably just means you guys. Because what I've done, they asked me if I was with him and I denied him. I was given a second chance and I denied him again. And then a third time I denied him. There's no way he's including me in this. But to, to assure Peter and to assure us that Christ has done enough, he says, tell the disciples and Peter, come meet with me. And in the same sense, Christ is beckoning us 
to meet with him. It's not like you've sinned too much because Peter was the worst. It's, it's like a schizophrenia. He was so passionately for Christ and then so passionately against him. And then, no, you'll not do this. And, oh, yeah, you can do that. And I'm going to cut off his ear. And, no, I don't know that guy. What's going on in Peter? And Christ, by name, calls Peter, come meet with me. And we know, based on, on Matthew and Luke's account, it's not just that. Christ goes to Peter and he confronts him and he tells him to look after the sheep. And he reminds him of his love as many times as it takes. Now that doesn't mean just because Peter screwed up huge and his, his repentance and his belief was deeper because of the major screw up. That doesn't mean we should go screw up huge. Let's go really blow this. That way we really sense grace. In fact, Paul addresses that. Don't go sin all the more just because grace abounds. Instead, realize you've sinned plenty. In fact, I would say it's certain we've sinned more than Peter. And it's because of the cross we're no longer dead and condemned because of that sin. So just as Peter, who became one of the most influential church leaders in history, we can see the bigness of God's grace despite our sin. You know what your week was last week. You know the thoughts you had, maybe even this morning, the things you've done. They didn't just seek satisfaction in the world. It's not just idol worship. It's the denial of Christ as satisfaction. It's the refusal to believe in the resurrection. We do it over and over again, yet still Christ says, come meet with me. Grace is enough. He enables our repentance. And not because we're all of a sudden awesome, but because Jesus is. And we realize our desperate need for him. Through belief in the resurrection, we have been made righteous before God. Through belief in the resurrection, we have peace with God. Through belief in the resurrection, we stand in grace, free from the obligation to the law that condemns. Through belief in the resurrection, we have hope of glory. A guaranteed inheritance for us, though we don't deserve it. And through the resurrection, we receive the fullness of the love of God. And that love is deep and it's wide and it surpasses knowledge. So if you've never realized it, if you've never personally thought on this, I'm talking to you as an individual. For all who would believe, hear me. Jesus loves you like no one else ever could, like no one else ever has. And he's done everything necessary for you to come meet with him. And he's beckoning you despite your sin, despite your inability to repentance and belief. He hasn't distanced, distanced himself from you and stepped out of your suffering. In fact, he stepped in and suffered more than us all. He, he considered equality with God a thing to not be grasped. And said he condescended, he humbled himself and became a man. And he suffered more than anyone as a servant to men. This is the Lord of all creation stepping down to human form. To death on a cross. That he would be exalted and worshipped by all. He was despised and rejected. Like a sheep led to the slaughter. He submitted himself, surrendered himself 
to unimaginable pain and suffering on our behalf. He bore the wrath of God on the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before him, looking beyond it to us, to you, to me, belonging to him for eternity and suffering. By his suffering, we were saved. By his wounds, we were healed. Because he became sin, we become the righteousness of God. This is truth. Just like the reality of the resurrection, we will be resurrected. He was killed and he didn't stay dead. The gospel doesn't just end in pain and sorrow and death of the cross. Praise God, there's the resurrection. And we celebrate it. We celebrate it because it's true for us. We will be resurrected. Victorious over death. Now, the Spirit of God that resurrected Christ from the grave is within us. It's doing a work within us to kill the sin as sin was put to death. To raise us up that we could walk in the newness of life. It's in us. It unites us. We are the body of Christ. The resurrected body of Christ at work in this world conquering everything because our Savior has overcome the world. This is reality. This is more real than the flesh and bone. This is a war going on beyond what we can see with our eyes. And we are in this war. Now as the people of God, we are active participants in this battle against sin. And the restoration of all things. So not only are we given new life because of the grace of God. But we are commissioned to a mission because of the grace of God. And through his grace we are being sanctified. That will lead to this glorification. So every amount of suffering is worth it. Just like every disciple who's ever died for Christ. We give our lives to this. Because he's risen. And there's a mystery to this prolonged suffering. Some of you are suffering now. You're thinking on the many things that are weighing you down in life. And Christ, stepping out of the grave, says he's done enough. We we can be sure that no matter what you're dealing with, God is working all things for your good. And glory will be better. This makes us more humble because it's out of our control. But somehow it also makes us more courageous and bold and confident, not in our own abilities, not in our our ability to kill our own sin, but in Christ's ability to have put sin to death and given us the same spirit within us. Nothing stops this, just like nothing ever has. And so it can be said clearly that we are not passively being sanctified. We've been justified by the resurrection, and we're being sanctified by the resurrection, and we will be glorified by the resurrection. But we fight along with Christ. As he puts sin to death, we put sin to death. Seed in your life and kill it. Because you have every bit of authority and power because of the resurrection to do so. Sin died and we kill it to the glory of God. So will God forgive you of your sin? Will the suffering come to an end? Can God save the lost, the ones you've been praying for and longing to see saved? Will he do it? Can you continue to move forward though the world is working against you? Though you can't seem to even control your thoughts, can you move forward? Well, stepping out of the tomb, conquering sin and death, Christ gives us a resounding yes. Not because of you, but because of him. Not because of your knowledge of the resurrection, but because of belief in it. So I beg you, believe. I would say, with with all my theological conviction, in this moment, choose to believe. See the belief. 
See its reality. Cling to it. Hold that thought of truth. Christ isn't in the grave. He's overcome the world and he's given it to us. And he will restore all things. And we are sharing in that joy. We have every reason to celebrate. Despite circumstances. Let's pray. Father, praise you for the resurrection. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we give ourselves to you as you called us to. Not in this this wish-washy, hopeful thinking. But in a sure hope. Knowing you have raised from the dead. You've been raised to conquer sin and death. Knowing that it's a reality and it's undeniable. We believe. I pray for every soul in here. God, draw us near to you to meet with the resurrected Christ. To see it's not just knowledge that saves us. It's belief that saves us. Lord, let us sing these songs and take of this communion and and give of ourselves, give of ourselves financially, give of ourselves with every energy, with all the time we have. God, let's devote ourselves to this mission, to your glory. Because it's by your stripes we're healed. It's by your sacrifice we're saved. It's by your resurrection we're made a part of this that's so much bigger than us. Be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen.